You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, February 22nd, the Washington Post hosted another installment of its ongoing Addiction in America live news series, where policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts examine the country's opioid crisis. In this segment, patient advocates and community leaders share their stories of hope and resilience. You'll hear from a forensic pathologist, the sheriff of Essex County, Massachusetts, and the founder of a local addiction support network called Learn to Cope. They offer solutions to support the families of those struggling with addiction. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. So this is our last discussion of the day. So it's your last chance to ask questions and uh, see what you'd like to know. So um, I want to introduce my guests on stage. Dr. Thomas Andrew is a forensic pathologist at White Mountain Forensic Consultants Consulting Services. You served as the chief medical examiner for the state of New Hampshire for 20 years. Joanne Peterson is the executive director and founder of Learn to Cope, which is a nonprofit organization that provides support and resources to the families of individuals struggling with opiate addiction and other drugs. And Sheriff Kevin Coppinger is the chief law enforcement officer in Essex County, Massachusetts. Um, so we've obviously heard a lot about the government response, and we've heard a lot about the medical system, and really want to focus this panel on um, the, the ripple effects of opioid of opioid uh, crisis, the families, the people in law enforcement, um, you know, pathologists, teachers, others who are affected um, by the crisis that that we have um, right now. So, Joanna, I want to start with with you. Actually, um, you know, we hear the the numbers of, of overdose deaths and people who have overdosed. Um, you know, all those people have parents and friends and. Um, you know, siblings. So I want to talk to you a bit about, about your story and learn to cope, and if you could talk about how this is affecting the families uh, of people who, who are using opioids right now. Sure, thank you. And good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for having me today. Um, so the families often are left behind in this issue, and I myself have been a family member since I was a child. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously later in life, it happened in my own family with one of my children. And um, I knew as a child that the family was left behind because it was always all about how can we fix this or how can we fix that or there was a lack of this or a lack of that. And then I would go to school. <laughs> and, and you had some, you had addiction issues when you were a very small child with your right, family members? Right, right. So we have grandparents, we have spouses, we have siblings, um, and we have children of those who suffer from addiction. And that's what our job is at Learn to Cope. I started it. Um, almost 15 years ago. And it was because, you know, our family needed help and families still today need help. So um, I think one of the most important things for families is support, education, resources, and, and hope. And when, you're, when you are not educated on the disease and the concepts of the disease and treatment and how we can be a part of their recovery rather than nagging and saying, why can't you just stop? more learning that this is something that they can't just stop on their own. And then we stop blaming ourselves. Because the first thing you do when it happens to your child or you know, your spouse or, or your parent is, what did I do wrong? What, did I do too much of this? Did I do not enough of that? And 
so at our meetings, when somebody walks into a meeting or any meeting like ours, um, not just, our, you know, there's other groups out there, um, just being welcomed, having somebody put a hand on your shoulder and say, it's okay, I know how you feel. Um, there's something to be said about peer support and you should always get therapy. We don't try to replace therapy, but um, having peer support and being with people that understand you, that are not going to judge you, that are not going to judge your spouse or your children, um, that was a huge piece of my recovery. Um, I think I grew up with stigma my entire life, so when it happened in my adult life, I thought, no, I'm not gonna live the rest of my life this way. This is a disease. This is something that, that we need help with, that my loved one needed help with, and so I came out, and when I did that, there were thousands of other people that were going through what I was, and today we have um, 25 chapters across the state of Massachusetts. We're very grateful to Mary Lou Sutter's Department of Public Health, um, the Baker administration, and, and even before then, Michael Botticelli, who you know, recognized that um, when families are able to get support and education, sometimes that can make the difference in that person's life, and, and they might end up getting stronger in the long run. And, um, you know, the deaths are really, really difficult um, in my office. There's not many weeks that go by that we don't deal with a number of them. Uh, we get many crisis calls today where people are just finding out that their daughter or husband or son or grandchild is using heroin. Um, and, you know, the pills, it, they're still... There's been a lot of great work done. We still have a lot more to do. We're very grateful for what's happening um, as far as, you know, the prescriptions. But there's still a multitude of prescribing um, going on where, you know, there's people on multiple prescriptions that they might do better without, um, like a mixture of them. So we have a long way to go. But my role, really, and the role of the many volunteers who are amazing with Learn to Cope and the staff is to take care of those families because they are left behind um, very much so. And there's kids in school right now that might have witnessed an overdose the night before or that might have lost their parent and is in foster care or that is being raised by grandparents that should be retiring now and are trying to figure out how to afford daycare, um, thinking, wow, I'll be 75 at their graduation if I'm lucky. So. Those are the things, I'm here to remind everybody of the things that we might not think about or, um, you know, have to deal with. It's a very scary thing to think, wow, you know, I, I had plans for my future, for my retirement. I wanted to travel and, you know, now they're, they're, instead they're worried about what the effects are going to be um, later and if they're going to be able to take care of that child up until their 70s and 80s and sometimes 90s. As you said, it's you know this is straining the nation's foster care systems. It's um, you know just just rippling in schools. And one place that it is is very sadly affecting is coroner's offices. And Dr. Andrew, you were the chief medical examiner for the state of New Hampshire, um, and you which has one of the highest per capita fentanyl overdose death rates in the country. Um, and you left that job because of seeing. Uh, the opioid crisis, and I actually wanted, you had a quote, uh, there was a story about you, it was not in the Washington Post, it was in the New York Times, but it's a very good quote that I, <laughs> that I'm a very good friend, um, but I just wanted to read this quote because I think it, it really gets to the heart of, of what we're trying to talk about here, and you, and you said, I found it impossible not to ponder the spiritual dimension of these events for both the deceased and especially those left behind. 
Can you talk about what you saw in your job and how it led you to the path that you're taking right now? Certainly, it's, uh, it, it, it sounds bizarre on the, on the surface to have spent 20 years as a forensic pathologist and then pivot toward seminary training. But for me, it's a natural progression. I, I've spent the vast majority of my professional public health life on the, uh, the assessment end you know, counting the cost of this particular public health disaster, which has been a slowly unfolding tsunami for the last decade, decade and a half. And just like the toll that it takes on families, there is a toll that it takes, I think, on the, on the provider as well, at least for me. Um, I, uh, I realized uh, a couple of things that um, 20 years is probably the appropriate amount of time for a public agency to be under the leadership of one individual. Um, 20 years is a good time for a, a fresh look, new face, uh, new direction. You don't want to get stale and uh, feel like you're getting beat up and you're doing the same old, same old. But if you look at the spectrum of public health service, um, I'm not gifted in the treatment end. Uh, or I, I spent some time in secondary prevention when I was a, a pediatrician. But I feel more called now to be on the primary prevention end by mentoring young people and hoping to be somewhat of an inoculant against them getting started in these behaviors in the first place. And part of what drove me in that direction was this endless drumbeat of previously healthy and, you know, to a, to a large extent, still healthy young people whose lives have been ended by uh, uh, misuse of these agents, some of which started uh, as a um, recreational attempt to achieve this altered state that's sort of part of the human condition, but some uh, in their 30s and 40s who got prescribed into addiction, and that is particularly tragic. And Sheriff Coppinger, um, we actually talked about this last year for uh, for a few stories, but um, you know this is also taking a toll on law enforcement. You know, you were the police chief in Lynn for for a long time. You were on the force for decades. Now you're the the sheriff up in Ex up in Essex County. Um, can you talk a little bit about what law enforcement is seeing? It's really changing their, your jobs. You're becoming much more social workers. You know, kind of first first line out there um, on the opioid crisis. Sure. Um, well, first of all, good morning, everyone. I have a confession to make, though. I listened to Mike Botticelli a few minutes ago saying folks use the words junkie and addicts, and I was one of those 30 years ago. I, I freely admit that, but that was the sign of the times. That's when nobody recognized what this addiction is doing to society. Um, so I've come full circle, as I think law enforcement has. You just said it, Katie. We look at this now as a disease, and we look at the negative effects it has on society as a whole. So as a police officer, I've seen, I've seen the, the, what happens to the individuals who are addicted, as well as the victims of their crimes. And I've watched the criminal justice system transform into more of a, of a let's fix the problem instead of just hiding it under the, under the covers, so to speak. So when I decided to run for sheriff, and I've been an officer for just a little over a year, um, I saw opportunities because there's more we can do. And in the Sheriff's Department up in Estes County, we, we run a, a detox program. Now, the good news is it's, it's, it's a detox program. It's 28 days, uh, 42 beds for men, and 42 beds for women. The downside of it is you have to be arrested to get there. Now, sometimes folks need that, need that little push or incentive to, to 
seek treatments and successfully complete it. I'm proud to say on the male side, we have an 87% success rate of completion. Females, 80%. But the beauty about it is, and the point I want to make is, we work very closely with the judges in our district courts, particularly in our drug courts, with our district attorney, defense attorneys, probation, and local police. We're looking for solutions to the problem. And to use a quote from one of the judges up in Essex County, it gives, and by the way, I'm not going to call them junkies anymore, I'm going to call them clients. It gives the clients options. And as the judge would say, it gives them a taste of corrections. Now our detox facility is a separate standalone unit within the jail and house of correction itself. They don't mingle with general population. We target the low risk offenders, usually pretrial folks who come in. Um, yes, they detox for a couple of three days or maybe longer depending on their addiction level. Then we, we program and we, we go through treatment and rehab through the rest of the 28 days. It's run by private health care and private mental health folks. And then upon successful completion of that 28 days, you go back in front of the judge. And this is where the options come in. Hopefully, they succeeded and they have the, the desire to get their lives back and get on track. And maybe the judge will send them home. Maybe they'll put an electronic bracelet on them, which we can handle, and they'll send them back into society so we can still keep track of them. They may have to report to one of our officers of community corrections for programming during the day, or perhaps drug testing. Or sometimes they have to come back into the jail itself and, and you know, serve sentence or get further treatment. But the big push we're doing now is the reentry efforts. What I saw as a police officer where I saw the gap was when they come out of jail, they go back to their communities. And as the pre some of the previous speakers um, mentioned before, that's when they're so highly susceptible to overdose and die. I've seen it many times on the street, I hate to say it, but you see these folks, they think they can go right back to the same dosage they've been taking and they die on our streets. That's the gap we're trying to fix now. So we're, we're looking for initiatives. We're, we've come up with plans. We've created a new reentry unit. We're partnering with anybody we can, we can find. One of our best partners is PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative out of Gloucester. Um, we have two recovery coaches that we obtained through them for a grant through the AmeriCorps. They're wonderful. So our plan, and by the way, when the clients come through our program and they go back to the communities, they're leaving with an individualized treatment plan. We have the experts in the field develop that. They go back. We're reaching out to our community partners, including our recovery coaches, including health, uh, excuse me, yeah, health care agencies, faith-based agencies, social service, municipal agencies, anybody that can help the individual. We want to send them back with a little toolbox where if they're having a bad day or they're not, you know, not succeeding in where they want, they have a phone call they, to make. They have a friend. They have, somebody can pick them up and get them back on track. Because once they're out of our jurisdiction, so to speak, there's only so much we can do. But we, we can attack this as a community problem, which that's why we're all here today. This is a community, a societal problem. We're doing this together, and hopefully we're going to make that impact. And Joanne, you know, your community is a big part of, of what you do as well. Can you kind of take us inside a meeting, kind of what, what people ask? I'm sure there are people who are, at the, you know, just coming for the first time and people who have been for, for quite some time. But can you kind of tell us a little bit about what the questions people are asking, um, you know, in, in just how people are attempting to cope as your organization's name? Sure. So when somebody walks in, as I said earlier, the first thing that they get is support from other people that are at these meetings and the volunteers who are amazing. Um, they get a packet full of information with the continuum of care, um, different drugs that are out there, um, 
you know, there's something in there about pregnancy and addiction because they can, when they're coming in from our, to our meeting, it could be anything. It could be parents that just found out their daughter's pregnant that just came to them that's, that's using. Um, it could be someone that just found out that their son's using heroin. So in that meeting, there can be a whole carte blanche of, of things going on. So what we make sure that we do when they come is first they feel the support and then we have guest speakers to educate us, um, usually professionals in the field or people that are in recovery. We like to learn about every single form of treatment that's out there, methadone, naltrexone, um, subutex, suboxone, 12 steps. Um, so we like to have open minds um, at our meetings so that no one will get judged for what form of treatment um, their family member is on. So if somebody raises their hand and says, I'm so happy, my daughter has been on the streets for years, and today she went to a methadone clinic. And, you know, everyone there should be just supportive about that and not saying, that's at one trading one drug for another. Or if somebody else raises their hand and said, you know, my son's going to AA meetings, everybody should just be supportive and say, that's great, he's not using heroin today. Um, we leave it to the professionals to come and teach us about what the different treatment options are. And we don't judge any of them. We don't judge 12 steps. We don't judge smart recovery. We don't judge methadone or suboxone. So when someone comes into a meeting, they get resources within a, a very short amount of time. We usually see parents come in, either they're divorced and with their, their um, new spouses and they're all working together, or we see grandparents coming in to support their sons or daughters for their grandchildren. Um, but I guess the main thing is we hear this all the time that if it wasn't for peer support and the people that I've met at this meeting, I don't think my son or daughter would be alive today. And we've also heard things like, I don't think I would be alive today because there is nothing worse than being blindsided and with this and then losing the dreams that you had for your, your loved one, um, especially when it's your, your son or daughter. And then ultimately, unfortunately, when people lose their children, which we have that happen a lot, um, we actually have to have a protocol at our meetings because when you first walk in, you might be asked, you know, would you like to share? Is there anyone that has had a tough a week? Is there anyone that would like to share? Someone will raise their hand, and this has happened numerous times, and say, I lost my daughter this morning, mm -hmm. and this is the first place I want to be. And then, you know, what do you do? You can't just say, okay, next. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we support that person. What do you do? Right away. But then you also have someone that it's their first meeting. Mm -hmm. So we have people go over to that person to support them because now they're even more afraid. Mm -hmm. But this is it. This is what it is. And, you know, people shouldn't be afraid to reach out and get help from, from a group, not just ours, but other groups because... They're not easy to listen to sometimes, some of the things that go on, but you might see that same couple or person that was there a month before and could barely speak because they're in such crisis. You might see them three months later smiling, helping somebody else, raising their hand and saying, my daughter got her 30-day chip today. So we also provide hope. We have to keep hope alive at every meeting. We even have parents who, many of them, who sadly have lost their kids and will still come back and say, you know, I've, I'm surviving, and say things like, I still have my learn to cope family that helped me get through that. So everyone that's in that room always, even me, myself today, will always have way in the back of the head that fear of, 
I could lose this person. And so it's nice to know that you have these people in your life that if that does happen, you'll still have that family, those people that you can talk to besides you know, therapy. And I'm curious how each of you, know, each of you are, are dealing with this every day. How do each of you individually cope and individually process what you have seen or are seeing on a daily basis? Well, I'll start. Start, yeah. You have to focus on the positives. Mm -hmm. um, we've all seen the negatives. We've heard the stories. Um, one of the earlier speakers said, this, this disease affects everyone. It does not discriminate in any way. Um, but there are successes out there. So you have to look at those, focus on them, learn from them, and make your initiatives even better. So we continue to do this. I would just like to throw one little plug out there. And I haven't, it's been talked about a little bit, though, but I'm a firm believer, and we need to do more in the prevention piece. Mm -hmm. Um, in my old career, we did a lot. You, you look at the next generation coming up, the kids in the schools. A lot of folks talk about that. There's a lot of theories about it. These kids today, um, they're not, um, they're, it's not unfamiliar to them to take a pill for medication. I've heard the term Ritalin generation used a couple of times about you know, kids coming up. So they're used to taking the, the prescription medications. So when they get to that inquisitive teenage years and they open up the medicine cabinet and they see those extra Oxycontins or Oxycodins or other, other prescription meds, they, they, they could just use those, and that starts the addiction process. We need to put more and more efforts into our, into our prevention efforts with the kids. And let's face it, if we were here 25 years ago today, we'd be smoking a camel right now. We've pretty much eradicated cigarette smoking, at least for the most part of it. And we need to do more with, with this whole, um, in, combi in combination with everything else, mm -hmm. the introduction and the prevent, uh, treatment and, and uh, rehabilitation. But it's a multifaceted approach. Mm -hmm. I also just want to, if anyone has questions, please post them to hashtag post live on Twitter. Joanne, how do you, how do you um, cope with this? Um, some weeks are better than others, I'll be completely honest. Um, I've just been introduced to yoga, which is very helpful. Um, I used to ride my horse, which, you know, there would be terrible days, and I'd go to the barn and just, you know, ride around, and I had to think about where my shoulders were and my hips and my knees and my, my ankles to get my mind off of that. But... My family at one time did approach me and say, would you please, you know, slow down a little bit. You know, on weekends we'd be sitting by the fire camping and my phone would ring and I'd be, I'll be right back. And an hour later I'd come back. So I had to really, um, you know, realize that it wasn't just affecting me, what I do, plus personally, but it was also affecting my family. Um, but I do have to say I have an amazing team from Learn to Cope, um, amazing team of people, some of them are here today. And, the volunteers, and, and, if, and if they know that I need some rest, they, they will approach me and say, you need to take a rest. Um, and we've had to have um, grief counseling for our team. Re very recently, we spent a day with somebody that helped us out because we don't realize sometimes how much we're carrying on our shoulders. And you know, when we get those calls that someone just lost their, their loved one, that's a really tough call. And sometimes we don't even know that it's affecting us. We're in robot mode, and then all of a sudden you're crying for no reason, mm -hmm. sitting in line at Dunkin' Donuts. And it's, it's, you don't realize the trauma that you go through dealing with this crisis on a day-to-day -day basis. So mm -hmm. I rely a lot on my friends, my team, and my family. And how about you, Dr. Andrew, when you were doing this? Well, I've heard you know, things that are just incredibly on point. When you're talking about the hope and the resilience piece of this, it really is in community and in families. We leave ourselves to the tender mercies of the so-called experts at our peril. To some extent, the experts have gotten us to where we're at. 
Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor, I'm married to a doctor, love doctors. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the point of this being a community-wide issue, a society-wide issue, and us pulling together as members of that community and that society is what's going to make this a success. You had said if we had been here 25 years before, the camels would be all lit up. This is a measure of how long this, sorts of thing, this sort of thing takes. Uh, it may not be in my lifetime that we make the kind of progress that we've made with cigarette smoking uh, as, uh, as opposed to, to these drugs of abuse. But the fact that we're all talking together and we're not in our separate silos anymore, the, the fact that you actually got medical people, community people, law enforcement people, uh, uh, support, you know, lay support people all sitting down, talking together, not only here but in other venues, that's what fires me up. That's what gives me the hope that we're just going to kick the... the, the Pajamas, <laughs> off of uh, and uh, uh, we're going to win it. So we only have about a, about a minute left. I just want to say there are Learn to Cope members here. Thank you for coming with photos of your loved ones. We really appreciate having you here. So thank you very, very much. So this is about all the time we have. Um, wish we had more. I'd like to thank Dr. Andrew, Joanne Peterson, and Sheriff Coppinger. Um, if you want to watch video clips and other highlights from the program, visit WashingtonPostLive.com. And thank you for everyone in the audience and everyone online for joining us today. We really appreciate you having us here. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.